Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Digital Capital Advisors Fireside Chat Series. We're excited to have you here as always. For those of you that don't know, I'm Andrew Daniel, a senior investment banker here at DCA. Uh, DCA is an investment bank uh, based in New York City in the Empire State Building. We have offices in Berlin and San Francisco. Uh, and this Fireside Chat Series is part of our 10-year anniversary celebration, which we just celebrated in September. Uh, this series features uh, conversations with world-class founders, CEOs, and entrepreneurs from businesses that we like from all over the world and a variety of sectors. Today, we're going into gaming and entertainment, typically kids gaming and entertainment, uh, and have the CEO, uh, Clark Stacy of Wildworks, here with us today. Clark, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you, Andrew. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here with you, and, and congratulations on 10 years for DCA. That's, that's quite an achievement. Thank you very much. We, uh, we're excited, although as I joke about seeing you on every episode of the show, we unfortunately could not celebrate. We wanted to have a, uh, an office party on the 76th floor of the Empire State Building, which is the perfect place to throw a party. But unfortunately, with, uh, with COVID, that got shut down. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I know for my company, Halloween is kind of our biggest in-office holiday of the year. Yep. And, and we're all a little disappointed that we're going to be doing it over Zoom, but we'll, we'll do our best. <laughs> there you go. Well, why don't we get started then and maybe talk about Wildworks first. I think what would be helpful would be to get an understanding for the folks who are listening as to what Wildworks does, maybe the story of where you guys have come from, where you guys are today, and, and what's headed in the future as you guys are thinking down the road. Sure, absolutely. It's an interesting and I think exciting time to be involved in, in kids' digital media in, in particular. Uh, for us, it's been it's been quite a journey. So uh, I was one of the co-founders of uh, Wildworks, originally called Smart Bomb Interactive in our founding days, but uh, back in 2003. So uh, you know, we're we've been at this for a while, 17 years. Uh, and I think like a lot of independent developers, we started out thinking that our path to success was doing uh, work for hire type uh, contracted gigs with big publishers. Uh, typically at that time, that was how a lot of developers got established. Um, you know, one of the co-founders and I had run another studio called Beyond Games for about 10 years beyond, behind, uh, before that, uh, where we were doing more AAA console action games. And when we founded Wildworks in part it was because we saw an opportunity to bring the production values and some of the technology uh, from the from that AAA realm to kids games which you know at the time and I think to a certain degree now still uh, kids kind of get the short end of the stick when it comes to uh, <laughs> to game quality and app quality and um, and we, we saw a real opportunity to come in uh, and and apply what we'd learned in the in the AAA space to, to that. Um, we had some success doing that with, uh, with publishers like, uh, like Namco Bandai and uh, Activision Value and THQ and those. Um, I think those companies have all pretty much gone away, not Activision, but it's, it's Value Division. Um, at around 2008, during the, the rest of the financial collapse, uh, we also saw something of a collapse in the kids' game space for, for consoles. Uh, you know, the business model for a long time had been, uh, you know, you the, whatever licensed uh, uh, or animated films coming out for kids, you uh, company goes out, licenses that, finds a developer that can, uh, you know, do three or four SKUs and in, in ten months of development and get something into a box that you can put on the shelf at Walmart in time for Christmas, uh, and you know, rinse and repeat uh, with ongoing years. 
you don't shop for uh, kids games based on the latest Pixar movie or anything else at, at Walmart anymore. Uh, you know, you, you get those digitally and, you know, by and large, the companies that were doing that kind of licensing took some of that in-house uh, or they've, they've just taken a, a completely different licensing approach and that business model wasn't really viable. So uh, we're funded by a company called Signal Peak Ventures based here in Utah, where we are. Uh, we went to them and said, look, we've got to make a pretty substantial pivot here. And we think the pivot is to developing our own IP. This is every independent developer's ultimate goal, I think, and, and dream. Uh, and you know, the typical path is you build up enough of a war chest to get off of that, uh, that publisher developer wheel of karma and, and kind of chart your own path. Um, we were you know, able to persuade our, our investors that this was uh, the right pivot to make. Um, and we started, um, started working on a few projects on our own. One of them, uh, which we launched in 2010, was uh, this browser-based game called Animal Jam. Uh, and Animal Jam now is enjoying its 10th anniversary as well. Uh, and has uh, has racked up, I think, uh, about 175 million dollars in um, in launch to date revenue. Um, is now on uh, across mobile platforms as well as desktop, um, and continues to expand both in in audience and feature set. And I think the niche that we've carved out for ourselves is there are not many companies out there doing what you might consider social games for kids, right? If you look at the top 20, you look at the top 200 games in the app store or the Google play store. Uh, I, I would wager that all of them have some degree of social features or social network integration built into them and that they rely on that for a lot of their viral user acquisition. You know, the old, invite your friends to give sure. you an extra life or give you coins and, um, and you know, connect to leaderboards and things like that. That hasn't existed for kids for, for some good reasons. Um, there's the, the Children's Online Privacy P Protection Act in the U.S., uh, which requires verified parental consent to store any data from a, uh, from a child, someone that you know or should know is a child using your app. Uh, and similar laws elsewhere in the world, GDPR uh, across most of Europe. Um, and that's that's prevented a lot of companies from getting uh, involved in what they would perceive as a, as a risky area of you know, shifting regulation. We've created a, a tech and services platform that we call Jamnet that was it was purpose built originally to support Animal Jam. But now it's the scaffolding for all of our new games and is something that uh, we see an opportunity to perhaps make available to, uh, to other developers in the future. Um, what that enables us to do is add a social layer safely and with parental oversight to pretty much any game or app or, or website where we can take care of not only that parental consent cycle, but we can ensure that uh, that a child's data is kept safe and secure and anonymized, uh, that there's a parental dashboard where parents can uh, observe and control anything their child is doing in the game ecosystem. 
but which allows kids to do something that they haven't been able to do in most kids' games, which is, you know, play with their friends and communicate with their friends. Um, you know, there, there are some games popular with kids that are, are adult-focused uh, games that, um, uh, that don't provide the same level of protection. They, they comply with, uh, with these regulations by offering an age gate up front. And if you say you're over 13, then you kind of go into the adult section. And if you say you're under 13, then you go through, you know, the parental consent section. Well, no kid says that they're under 13 in, yeah. in these games, right? <laughs> they, they know what to answer there. Uh, but that puts them in a dangerous situation with, um, you know, kind of an unfiltered chat environment and potentially uh, pretty toxic and, and sacrifices their anonymity. There, in games like Animal Jam and games using the Jamnet platform, there is no adult section. Uh, the assumption is always that we're uh, dealing with with children, uh, and therefore we're we're treating their data with uh, with great care and making sure that what they encounter in the game is moderated and supervised and safe. No, absolutely. And you know, I think one of the things we'll talk about a little bit later that is ultimately a lag in the space is the infrastructure support kids entertainment generally, right? And Jamnet, of course, is your attempt at solving that problem. But it's such a macro issue that scares so many could be kids entertainment providers from actually entering the space because they can't get comfortable with ultimately the legal risks that exist in knowing that kids are going to get around the gates that exist because the gates are so flawed today. So, you know, in my view, your business you've demonstrated that technology infrastructure works by building Animal Jam and Feral as well in different lands. Um, and in doing that, you're demonstrating the quality and capability of the technology, which has even a greater potential beyond, knowing that there aren't many others who have that kind of capability in today's environment. So that, again, is how I think about your business. I think certainly an interesting position to be in. Yeah, you know, I see a lot of open water around us and the the companies that have focused in this area, I think, are now starting to, you know, harvest the benefits. You're probably familiar with the um, acquisition recently of, of Super Awesome by Epic. I think they awesome. saw the... <laughs> yeah, I, I think they saw the wisdom of incorporating into, you know, one of the two most ubiquitous game engines out there, the functionality to... Uh, reach kids safely uh, with advertising that's not going to track them or sacrifice their privacy, um, but also you know to have a, a suite of other tools for uh, for recognizing and communicating with uh, with underage players in your game. It's a huge market, and uh, you you might be aware they're making more of these kids every day. Uh, so it's it's perpetually refreshed from below. Uh, you know our our focus has been uh, around eight to 12 and uh, we don't have a problem with, um, with finding more new eight-year-olds to, to bring into our ecosystem. And I think this goes to my, maybe the first question for us to discuss here, which is really around the evolution of children's entertainment over time and how we've ended up where we are today. Right. I think what's frequently underestimated is the size of the kids market. I think some of that is because historically it was difficult to access. You mentioned already that, you know, the old day children's entertainment was playing with toys uh, and generally doing very simple games and things to that extent. We saw some maturity into TV and content and some of the legacy things before gaming was so uh, acrimoniously accepted. And now we've seen this transition to push really far in the wave of gaming, maybe even all the way over into edutainment and edu-leisure, um, trying to, again, get kids to live in a digital native first world. And so I think that transition has been 
fairly polar and, and linear in regards to progression. And now we've ended up in a scenario in our view where children's entertainment as a broad bucket represents a really large TAM relevant to the other gaming TAMs that exist out there, particularly in developed markets where the proliferation of smart devices, whether they're iPhones or, or iPads or whatever, um, ultimately gives a real legs up for the digital native kids. And so I'd be curious how you think about that progression of children's entertainment over time and, and maybe where we are today from an entertainment perspective in the kids' life in that age demographic that we think about. Yeah, you know, one of the things that we've observed over time, especially as the mobile market has matured, is that kids in our demographic are are often or usually the recipients of the hand-me-down device, right? So they're, so they're probably a, a generation back or maybe yeah. even more uh, from the, the cutting edge. So whatever you're going to develop for them has to be approachable within those those technical limitations. And um uh, and and I think that you know that that might be a constraint, but it also is is pretty liberating and broadens your market when you can run on on more devices. But you're you're absolutely right. Um, you know when we look at a, how a game like Animal Jam is used, it's used by kids as much as a social network as a, as a game that they play. And we're seeing this now with, uh, you, you mentioned Feral. This is a, a game we have in early access now. The mobile version is launching in, in uh, December. Um, and that's a game that kind of takes the players that have aged out of Animal Jam and gives them a place to be that's transitional to more adult-focused games, so 13+. plus. Um, but in both cases, you know, we see average daily engagement in Animal Jam of upwards of 70 minutes and uh, upwards of 100 minutes in, in Feral. And that's... You know, those are television-like numbers, and you know we see average uh, you know, daily players in in here that are television-like numbers for the eight to twelve demographic. Um, so you, if you if you look at uh, say Nielsen for Disney Channel, Nickelodeon, uh, it's kind of a lost demographic, and I think that there's probably people there who are wondering where they went. Um, we happen to know where they went uh, and the way that they're using this entertainment now is in multiple layers. They might have a television on in the background, be playing and talking to their friends in animal jam. And at the same time, you know, exchanging artwork in Instagram or, you know, having a voice conversation in, in discord, there's multiple layers going on here. And, uh, you know, capturing their intent, their, their attention means engaging them socially with, with friends and, uh, you know, hopefully for us in a, in a safe and trustworthy way. Yeah. And what's also interesting to see is the maturity of the space and evolution. You know, we've gone to a world now where everybody with COVID accelerated this, we'll talk about COVID in a second, but you know, everybody is now beginning to recognize that this kid's entertainment bucket, right? This lost demographic set, these sets of users, are an interesting one to have access to, right? And getting to them is pretty difficult. You can get to the parents uh, and try to get the downstream from there. Uh, you can get directly to the kids, but only in very specific scenarios because they're so protected and or they're not being directly identified. And so we've seen this reach, if you will, of media properties diversifying, getting away from just being TV, but also wanting to have an effect with regards to gaming, but also wanting to have some e-commerce properties. And so we've seen these kind of uh, morphing, if you will, of large media assets, trying to blend everything together, all to deal with very much what you're talking about, which is attention is being spread across a variety of interfaces. 
One of the challenges I think we frequently talk about with buyers and investors in this space is monetization, right? And folks look at this demographic and say, you know, how do we A, identify who they are, and then B, within the rules of the law, actually try to monetize this user set, right? And what can we really do? What are the restrictions for us? And we've seen many people screw this up, right? I mean, I think about YouTube, for example, as being a perfect, you know, perfect example of somebody who maybe screwed this up in that they were having really bad advertising management. Uh, and so they had all these crazy ads going up right against children's content, right? And that's kind of the classical example. But you're also seeing it happen in toxic environments on traditional gaming assets, Fortnite being a great example, where they're not addressing the kids that are going on. But again, they're trying to build environments where they can monetize without maybe turning a blind eye to the kids. And so as somebody who's in the industry, you know, I would be curious how you think about monetization for this demographic and then ultimately what monetization looks like as things continue to mature. Yeah, you know, there's and th this is a mistake that that we made going into Animal Jam that we've learned a lot about since, because when we originally conceived our demographic of, of eight to twelve, uh, that's actually uh, four demographics at least, uh, because the the way that kids consume media, the stuff that they're into, the way that they want to interact online changes so rapidly during that age period and leading up to that age period. I think to to your question, what if you go into the app store, either of the app store, any of the app stores and go into their kids section right now, what you'll see is mostly preschool, yeah. uh, maybe a little bit into early secondary age group. You're not going to see stuff that's, you know, eight to 12 and tween and, and beyond in that section. Um, and I think the reason for that is because they don't, the, uh, that preschool age range for them, the social features in the game aren't really that important. But once a child gets to be about eight or so, they typically are starting to pick their own apps from the app store rather than have their parents choose them. And they're not going to the kids section for them. Sure. Uh, you know, and and in, you know, they know where the games are and the entertainment is. And uh, in part, I, I think that they're doing that because uh, they want to play with their friends and it's not the games in the kids section to give them the ability to do that. Um, so, yeah, this is our approach is what's put games in, in there that do give them the ability to do that and do it safely. And monetization is one of the things that needs to be done safely. Um, yeah, uh, for a lot of mobile games in particular, it's a slash and burn approach to monetization. They're having to pay a ton to acquire users. So their model is built around getting big spenders to spend big. Yeah. And you you do that with a variety of gameplay Skinner boxes and, and psychological experiments that have been well honed by the casino industry over the years. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, and you, you become very adept at identifying, um, you know, the big spenders or, or whales as they're often termed in the industry and, um, you know, giving them what they want, getting as much as you can out of them. You can't do that with kids, even if, uh, yeah, even if from a regulatory standpoint that you could, um, you know, these these are children, and there's there is uh, there's, yeah yeah no there's there, there's a tremendous ethical responsibility that that comes with this, 
And it's one that we take very seriously. If we if we're spending seventy to a hundred minutes a day with a with a child, we are a not insignificant part of their childhood and their development. Um, I would much rather have a you know, right now an average subscription length in Animal Jam is uh, between a year and a year and a half varies from. Uh, from time over time, I would much rather have a long-term relationship with a subscription with that child and a covenant with the parents that, look, we're going to charge you a reasonable amount for a subscription. Your child's going to get, you know, this much value out of it. And there's going to be an educational component to what they get. And your child's not going to keep coming back to you, coming back to the well saying, I need more coins i need an extra life i need you know so we don't in games like animal jam directed at that demographic we don't sell consumables we don't say you know here you've got to buy uh ammunition for your 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 gun when you run out of ammunition you've got to buy more um we rely principally on a subscription and i think that makes up you know upwards of 90 percent of the monetization in, in animal jam uh, because it's a very straightforward, easily understandable way to monetize that parents understand and kids understand. Um, now, that's not to say that that's the only ethical way to monetize in the kids space. I think that there, there are companies that are doing it with premium apps uh, like Tokaboka that yeah. uh, uh, have built a fantastic catalog of, of uh, around that model. And it can be done with in-app purchase but uh, it, you know, it, it takes it, it takes a, a, a delicate hand there and a real appreciation for the audience and who you're who you're talking to. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's very easy to go astray, uh, you know, both act- ethically and in a business sense, if you're getting into that type of monetization with kids. Uh, overwhelmingly, I think that um, the what you want to do is build a trust relationship with parents and um, hopefully a long-term relationship for a company like us that we could take kids from some of our younger facing apps into the animal jam ecosystem from there into feral. I'd rather have that kind of multi-year relationship with them than grab as much as I can in a month or two. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of why it's sometimes hard for traditional gaming businesses, or even traditional media businesses to bridge the gap into kids entertainment because it becomes so jaded to really what is a freemium model, lots of in-game purchasing, lots of different monetization models that aren't sustainable when, as you said, you have to keep kids going back to the well. That creates a very high friction point amongst parents. And so they go from a world where they're used to hitting the gamer and they're okay with those friction points. And all they got to do is kind of click, yes, I'll pay for it and continues on to a world where they now have to think about how sustainably to monetize, knowing that identifying whales is no longer the game, but instead it's finding the aggregate subscription price they can carry over some extended time horizon. And lastly, get comfortable with parents, which is a total new group they're bringing in. And I think that sometimes creates a barrier for external folks coming in who just don't get the monetization fast enough and go down the wrong path before you even start talking about the infrastructure that's needed to support it. Sure. 
Sure. And that's, you know, I think that's what scares uh, a lot of uh, you know, established developers away from the kids category in the app yeah. stores is they see that, well, there's there's all these ceilings on monetization and, and per user uh, monetization. We're not sure how to acquire users there. Uh, you know, are we talking to parents or are we talking to kids? Which voice are we yeah. using? And that's that's before you get to you know the regulatory concerns and you know the the very real concern that uh, you can have a really bad PR day and your fortunes change very quickly if something uh, negative happens to uh, a child in your game or in the ecosystem that you provide or they rack up a thousand dollar iTunes bill or <laughs> or any of these things. So uh, yeah, it, it's I, I imagine it's daunting. That's part of why. Uh, we've wanted to build a platform that will ultimately lure some of these uh, high quality developers into the category where I think there's, um, I would love to have more competitors in, you know, providing uh, really high quality apps for kids. There's plenty of room for them. And this is what I think creates such an interesting content landscape. We've touched on this a little bit. You have uh, on one side of the equation, really young focused apps, right? And there's lots of development that happens there where it's preschool um, or certainly beneath five years old. And a lot of that is around, you know, it's relatively low risk. Most of those kids aren't making the decisions themselves at that point. The parents are doing it. So we don't feel as concerned. And monetization is clearly going to come from parents because, you know, Sally, who's three years old, is not going to whip out the credit card and put the numbers. So you got that side, which, which is kind of populated. And on the other side, you've got gaming companies, traditional gaming companies that are building games um, really with an adult audience in mind, certainly 18 plus. They're aware, as much as they want to admit or not, that younger kids are getting on to their platform, not to go after Fortnite, but I think they're a perfect example of this. And all of a sudden you have non-safe environments, but a very populated environment nonetheless, right? Lots of different options of games that are exciting, different versions, all the options you could ever want but none of them focus on kids. And you end up in the middle, and in the middle is kind of where WildWorks says, but there's not a lot of other options, right? We're really child-focused entertainment properties. It's a very short list, and many of them that have existed have actually died off for whatever reason. And so now it's a spot where you guys are kind of on an island. There are some as well that are there with you. There's also a gray zone that probably exists between the adult gaming and you guys, or Roblox maybe, or somebody like that, who's who's focused a little bit more on kids, but he doesn't have the infrastructure built in. And so, again, as I think about the content landscape, it's just so interesting how it's evolved and the fact that there just aren't the, all that many assets really focused in an edu-leisure way on this demographic, with the exception of kind of edutainment now increasingly growing as of recent. Constructed media, for example, we advise trying to merge the worlds of some kind of topic learning and entertainment together. And that's been growing a little bit. But we'd be curious to get your thoughts on it. Because again, it's, it's very interesting to see how that spectrum is played out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that 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 Venn diagram between education and entertainment is one that remains to be explored quite a bit. Okay. Um, I think I think what you you have is a lot of the education focused companies or apps are are looking at preschool and you know maybe preschool through uh, second or third grade. Um, and they're not they're not looking much further beyond that because that's sort of the realm where the the big pure entertainment companies have, have taken over. Um, consequently, what you get is uh, you know, academics or pedagogy focused companies trying to do 
uh, gamification type stuff in, in their apps and with results that are typically better imagined than witnessed. Um, and, uh, you know, if you see game companies trying to trying their hand at, uh, at pedagogy on the education side, it's, it's, it's not much better. Um, I, I think what we, I hope we'll start to see as the kids category becomes uh, you know, less daunting with, uh, with technologies like ours, like super awesome, like um, you know, companies like two hat that are doing a great job with, uh, with moderation software. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think, I hope that you'll see you know, more gameplay people getting into the potential of the education side. I'm sure as you're seeing, you know, valuations on the in the ed tech side are are astronomical right now, Indeed. and uh, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful that some of those investments, some of those early stage investments, are going to turn into good gameplay for kids uh, as well as entertainment. For us, our our approach with Animal Jam anyway has been um, we work for the kids, so teachers approach us and say, you know, can you put some testing in here so we can see what children are learning about animals? You know, we have hundreds of hours of, uh, of educational science and animal videos in the game. Uh, you know, we have upwards of 30 eBooks in the game about different animal species, but our, our reply is always the same. And that's that um, we don't work for you. We, uh, we don't even work for mom and dad. We work for the kids and the way that we can equip the kids to demonstrate to mom and dad that this is a substantive place for them to hang out is when they come to the dinner table with something new about uh, wolves that they just learned in Animal Jam. That's the, that's the best sales pitch we could possibly have, right? So it's important for us philosophically as a company that uh, the educational part of Animal Jam be real and be substantive. It's not just a veneer that we put over it to uh, to attract parents. That the the uh, the conservation and habitat preservation mission of the of the game and the players is real. Um, but we don't lead with that when you're talking to to kids and you say, "Hey, this is an educational game. Come play this. You're going to learn about such and such." Yeah. Especially now, especially when they're they're being forced into so much mediocre digital education content. Um, no, they'll uh, they sniff that out pretty quickly. So I think one of the things that we think about is ultimately the democratization of the space. We think one of the tools that unlocks that democracy, if you will, or certainly the ability for outsiders to enter this entertainment space that we're talking about is technology, right? And, and you've mentioned a few, super awesome transaction, perfect example of this. Jamnet, a really great example of this. There's others as well that are increasingly there, but it's a short list, right? There's not a whole lot of folks who have built the infrastructure, much like there aren't many providers. I would be curious how you think about the technology need, right? What is critical as you think about the infrastructure for this space? You know, what exists today, whether it be in Jamnet or Super Awesome or others, and what needs to come when we think about the technology specifically that, that ultimately needs to be uh, present in this environment? You know, I, I think that uh, at least with regard to kids, the the regulatory environment has to catch up with the technology that's already there. Sure. Um, and maybe and, that's part and of the question. 
Corey, not to cut you off, maybe that's part two, right? What does the regulatory environment look like for folks? Yeah. Uh, because there's a lot of misunderstanding, whether it be GDPRK yeah. or OPA. Yeah, and I think what we've done is so far is we've taken kind of a wet mop approach, and I know that the way that uh, the COPPA was written, it's really only formally reviewed every 10 years. Yeah. You think about how much happens in, in technology and, and gameplay just in the platforms in 10 years. That's nuts. You know, the uh, COPPA still has written into it that you provide verified parental consent by fax. Um, it's, yeah, it, it needs, it, it needs to, to be looked at more frequently, but to your, your question, I, what I think that you're getting at is what's, let's take TikTok as an example. I think it illustrates very well that kids really want to be creators. They don't just want to be consumers of digital media and they want to be able to share this where at the same time, parents look at this with horror and say, you know, absolutely not. I don't want my child on yeah. TikTok. I don't want, you know, them strangers knowing what they look like and where they live and how they dance and, and all of this. Um, their technologies are, are out there uh, for kids to be able to participate in things like that safely and socially, um, you know, using, uh, you know, using real-time animated avatars uh, in somewhat the same way that, um, you know, Apple's Animoji system is built into their, their operating system. Uh, but using that on a, on a different scale in apps like that can yeah. enable kids to participate in that part of social media safely. Um, but the, the, the platforms for it have to recognize the, the, the kid audience there and put in the safeguards necessary, go to the expense, frankly, necessary of, of moderating that for that audience. Um, and the regulation has to enable them to do it without being uh, really just the easiest way, the logical way to do it is just don't let kids in. Um, and that, that deprives them, I think, of what are legitimate educational and social opportunities, beneficial opportunities in, uh, in social digital media, and hopefully make them better digital citizens. Uh, yeah, I don't think my generation and, and the generations immediately after mine are doing a very good job of creating uh, you know, civil discourse uh, in the social media. Sure. Um, we have an opportunity to inculcate that in a new generation of kids coming in, but not if we say, no, you can't sign up for any of these things until you're 13 or 15 or whatever it is. And then we're going to drop you immediately into this, this Babylon of, of, you know, uh, unfiltered content. No, absolutely. And so maybe what makes you talk about, and I think this space has undergone a very significant COVID effect. Gaming in general, obviously, has seen a very significant gaming or COVID effect, um, whether that be from a revenue perspective, whether that be from a volume of time perspective, whether that be from the UA environment, whatever it might be, right? But we've seen this up and to the right. Obviously, for those watching, you know, that's correlated to pretty healthy valuation uplift as well. Astronomical, astronomical might be a, an understatement as to how severe the valuation environment has gotten just in the gaming multiple world. But I'd be curious how you think about kids gaming specifically, both inside of kind of the traditional kids gaming assets, uh, you, Animal Jam being a perfect example of this, maybe Roblox and others who are slightly closer, as well as more broadly where kind of the kids entertainment world has shifted 
keeping in mind some of the macros as well, right? Whether it be what kids are doing now for school or anything else. We'd be curious to get your thoughts on how that's had an effect today and what that looks like over the next six or 12 months. Sure. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a dynamic changing space to be in. And, and a lot of people have observed rightly, uh, I think that there's there is something of a, of a COVID sugar rush that happened for a, a lot of game companies, including those and kids. Um, and for some of them, it, it hasn't been sustained or it's kind of gone back into their ordinary uh, yearly cycle. Um, there are certainly concerns over the next year or so that uh, the economic fallout from COVID is going to hit families um, you know, pretty hard at, at a lot of different uh, income levels um, and that that's going to have an effect on that ecosystem. But Overall, what, uh, what's been accelerated here and what I think the people have been forced to become much more aware of is the use of virtual spaces as social spaces for kids and how ubiquitous that, that already is and how important yeah, the availability of it becomes when you don't have face-to-face interaction. Um, you know, we've, we've seen anecdotally kid, uh, teachers assembling their, you know, second grade, third grade students in an animal jam uh, den for their morning meeting because they can hold their attention better than they can in, in Zoom. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, those kind of spaces, not many of them exist that are directed for, for kids, especially. Um so the fallout that, that we're going to see now uh, as people realize that influencers are a big part of kids' lives and uh, they're a big part of what makes it or doesn't make it in terms of new IP uh, that, uh, for kids. Um, the partnership, you know, you're, you have a, a dilemma now that's always existed in the game space, but has been ex- accelerated now because of uh, you know, Apple getting rid of the IDFA and uh, uh, the ability to track users from installation of an app, you know, from advertisement to installation. Um, you know, that's uh, that's going away, which means that the uh, establishing a new IP, launching a new IP is a real challenge that requires the participation of influencers, of early adopters, of you know, reaching out and building a community around a game um, rather than just, hey, I know I've got a, an MMO here that's going to appeal to the hardcore MMO player. I can go on Facebook. I can cherry pick the audience that I want and I can I can spearfish them you know, almost individually. Uh, in the in the kid space, you've got the the age old dilemma of do I try and create a new intellectual property, which is really pushing a big rock up a, up a hill. Or do I go out and license something that, you know, a company like Disney or, or Viacom has already, you know, done a movie or, you know, created uh, some IP momentum behind yep. it. Uh, less less risky, but also more temporary. Um, it, you know, when that, uh, when that movie fades or that IP fades as it goes through its cycles, um, you know, what, where's your business then? Um, I, I uh, my hope is that we'll see more uh, media companies doing what we've been doing, which is investing in creating evergreen IP in the kids space that um, uh, you know isn't as dependent on the traditional media players. 
And uh, for us, the learning process over the uh, over the last you know uh, twelve months, and certainly for the next twelve months, is how do we best work with uh, with influencers that particularly appeal to kids, um, and how do we how do we nurture the influencer environment that's emerging in our game communities? I think there's a lot of innovation to come with regards to how folks are going to go acquire users for this demographic. And I think there's an equally a, a, an understanding or capability ramp that needs to happen in that subcomponent of now in, in the old world, if we're a traditional gaming business, we feel very comfortable. We go on Facebook, we do our UA, we got somebody who's going to go publish this thing, we're going to run with it to, okay, I need to get comfortable with what that looks like in children's gaming, which is very different. I think influencers are certainly critical. You're seeing cross-media properties happen. You're seeing folks who own that IP want to monetize it, but it's so hard for them they go out and just license it. So you're seeing all this kind of difficulty and friction. I think that's equally as important as a technology infrastructure needs to become more democratized to ultimately incentivize people to come into the space. And I think what COVID is going to do for everybody is A, the volumes have gone up. In some cases, the volumes have now stabilized or come back down, right? The high watermark was probably hit over the summer. In this space, particularly, you're dealing with kids who are at school, so they have less time than what they have in the summer. But because being on digital is now such a big portion of what kids are doing every day, right? They're not sitting in classrooms, they're on Zoom calls, doing class, whatever else it might be, I think the fight per minute of time is, is getting harder. That is, games really have to figure out how do we serve the kids, to your point earlier, to get their attention so that they don't feel like they're just in another minute of kind of rolling along in whatever they're dealing with on a daily basis. So I think, you know, that lift is increasing, but the good news is the kids are definitely in the place where it's digital native across device. They're spending all the time they can looking at screens. The parents are no longer stopping that. That wasn't the case five years ago. Uh, you know, now parents are also encouraging to use technology and use smartphones, use all this kind of stuff. But in our view, I think COVID will help to accelerate that. And hopefully the revenues that have been established by some of the businesses that are in the gaming space today, it's focusing on kids, whether officially or not, will help to entice external folks to come in to build a more populated and rich ecosystem in a sustainable way that is more sustainable than what happened in the last wave when everybody kind of went under, whether it was Club Penguin or wherever else you want to name, will all kind of slowly fizzled out despite initial really strong uh, awareness. So, that, that's our view, and, and hopefully COVID helps to accelerate that. You know, and I, I think the, the lesson that's come out of this for, for a lot of game companies, and I, you know, certainly for us and for those focused on the kids space, is it's, it's all about the community you create around your IP, around your game. You look at a, at a game uh, like Among Us, which my 10-year-old absolutely loves, um, and I, I, th I think that uh, there you've got a lot, of, uh, a lot of factors coming together at once, but you'll notice that it's, it's not, one of them is not graphics, is not rendering horsepower and the amount of triangles they're pushing and how high res it is. It's, it's all about how you build community in between play sessions about you know, how engaging those play sessions are in the moment, how approachable it is for a younger audience to get into it quickly and apprehend what's, what's going on and, and jump in and feel like they're a part of it. Um, and you know, also how that, uh, how that community can kind of self-regulate uh, to, to keep it appropriate for kids. You know, it, it helps if a, a 
core you know, part of your gameplay loop is throwing obnoxious people out in airlock. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but it's something that you know, all community managers uh, have to learn in kids' media. Yeah, completely agree. Well, Doug, this has been uh, this has been super helpful, and I think lots of folks are going to enjoy this, and hopefully, it entices some that will listen to think more seriously about the uh, the kids entertainment space and maybe cool ideas of their own. Um, really appreciate you taking the time, and, and yeah, I think this has been great for everybody. Uh, it's it's always great talking to you, Andrew, and and hearing your insights on the industry. You you've got a, a bird's eye view over a lot of tech industries that is always interesting to to hear about. So I'll I'll enjoy listening to um, to some of your other podcasts and and seeing how that fills in some knowledge gaps in my space. I appreciate the shout out there for uh, for the additional podcast that we have. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mark. Thanks so much. Thanks, Andrew. Take care.